your Bibles tonight, I, I want you to go over to the Gospel of John chapter 8. We're going to be dealing there, and I thought the best way for me to, to deal with this where I want to go to tonight, I'm going to take just a moment to summarize and bring it up where we are, and then we're going to deal with a verse of Scripture in its context the verses found in John 8, 31 and 32, um, you know well. So I'm not going to read the text. I'll go to it in just a moment. Uh, but just what you have your Bibles open to John 8, 31 and 32. Before we get there, I want to just quickly try to put things in perspective uh, in context of this series that I've been teaching on, on the Church's Commission been teaching from Matthew chapter 28 and dealing with the last verse of that where Christ said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So we were dealing with this commission where he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. We said that the word teach there means to disciple. So God is telling, Christ is telling his his disciples, his apostles, uh, to go and to teach, to disciple all of the nations. And so we've been dealing with this business of discipleship and what it is to be a disciple of Christ. And we're, we're dealing with the, we dealt with the faith of the commission itself, that Christ is the one who gives the commission. He has all authority and we must put our faith in him and trust he knows what he's doing. Trust he knows how to direct us. Trust he knows how to lead the church. And now we're talking about the facts of the commission, and that is this, this, this business of uh, a discipleship. And uh, it was the idea that it was a, uh, we talked about this commission, was a commission that was active. He said, go, and, and then he said to disciple the nation. So and in the context, when we, when we learn about being a disciple of Christ, the discipleship of Christ is a unique relationship, different than anyone else uh, and their disciples. There are a lot of folks that have disciples. John the Baptist in the Bible the, uh, talks about him having disciples. The rabbis had disciples. They, someone who followed your teaching. If you were a teacher and you, those who followed your teaching and followed your philosophies and were schooled in your way of thinking, they were your disciples. But uh, those were really not more than learners, students in the class that just learned the philosophy of the teacher and may one day replace the teacher. But in the discipleship of Jesus Christ, it is unique in that we are actually brought into a union with Jesus Christ. We are in a covenant relationship with Him, and He is more than just our teacher. He is our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our Master. He is Alpha and Omega beginning in. He's our God. He is our God. We worship Him. We honor Him. And we are married to Him. We are united with Him. We have become one spirit with Him, the Bible says. We are bone of His bone and flesh of His flesh, Ephesians chapter 5 says. We are members of His body. And so we are brought into union with Jesus Christ and that this discipleship is not just Christ merely instructing us, but it's Him living His life through us. He is in us by the presence of His Spirit, and He's living His life through us so that He is taking our particular personality, our particular calling, our particular time in which we live, the age in which we live, and He is going to live out His life as He would live it if He were us. And, and that's the thing. We're not trying to be Jesus. We're not Jesus, and we will never be Jesus. We're not trying to be itinerant preachers. Uh, God does call some men to become itinerant preachers as Christ was. Uh, but most of the world will not be an itinerant speaker. Many are going to be mothers simply raising children. Many are going to be factory workers. Others are going to be truck drivers. Some are going to be in, in, in various jobs, landscapers, uh, farmers, uh, carpenters, uh, electricians, all sorts of jobs that you will find yourself in. And the thing is, is that Christ 
is able to manifest his character and nature in every one of those jobs. When it's a legitimate job, now he's not going to be a barkeeper, all right? <laughs> There's certain jobs that Christ is not going to do. They are not legitimate jobs. They're not honorable jobs or noble jobs, and therefore he's not. But what every calls us to do will be a noble calling, be it motherhood or be it, again, someone who is a, a, a shoe repairman. It doesn't matter. If Christ is in us, he's going to bring us to glory. So we, we, we're dealing with this covenant relationship. We talked about that. And then I wanted to deal with this business of discipleship, looking at some specific scriptures that talk about what it is to be in a disciple and how this plays out. What is he doing in us? And we talked about the first one found in Luke 6 and 40. When he said, the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. So the first thing that Christ is doing, if you're his disciple, you need to understand that he is going to make you like him. Not necessarily in calling, not even necessarily in personality or, or gifts. We're not going to be gifted like Christ was gifted, but in terms of character in terms of desires, in terms of, of uh, uh, motives, in terms of actions and deeds and how perspective of life, how we look at things, how we act towards others and how we treat others. In that way, Christ is going to show himself in you, his faithfulness, his love, his tenderness, his joy, his peace, his long-suffering, all of those things. Christ is going to work that in your life and it's going to be expressed in your particular personality, in your particular calling, in your particular place and station in life. If you're an American, if you're an African, if you're a Russian, if you're a, a Chinese, wherever you're at, he's going to demonstrate himself in you. And you are in a process of being perfected. So he wants you to be like him. He wants to perfect you. He wants to shape you. And so he, you are in his class, and through that class, he's just not trying to put a philosophy in your head. He's trying to change you. Right. So he's not here to merely educate you. He's here to transform you. That's right. He's not here to merely promote a teaching. He is here to promote his kingdom right, and to build his kingdom. You are in his kingdom. You are his student, and you are his epistle. You are his living letter. You are his message. You are the one that he is going to use to reveal his will, yeah. his character, right. and his nature under this world. So that's the first thing we talked about. We, we've dealt with that one quite a bit, and we dealt with it this past uh, Wednesday night, preaching some about it. Now I want to go to a second statement, the one I want to mention in John chapter 8 tonight. Now there's a lot of ground. I probably won't cover it all this evening. But John chapter 8. Let me read verse 31 and verse 32. There's another statement he makes about being his disciples. And then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So the Bible says, and this we're going to talk about this scenario in the best way that I can find I have I've spent quite a bit of time here in this passage and a sister passage we're going to look that, that speaks the same thing and we're going to put together with it out of 1 John, 1 John chapter 3 and then John chapter 8 and we're going to put these passages together. But I want you to, I, I felt it was best for me to give the context by taking this and just reading through this chapter and explaining it as we go and pointing things out. We're going to see several things that, Christ is talking about and they're going to be brought together. These concepts are going to be brought together in this passage. Now this is one of, of kind of three great declarations he makes in John chapter 8. We're going to look at those tonight. But, he, but here's the thing he makes about discipleship. He looks at these Jews which have believed on him and, uh, and, and believe that in this moment they are willing to say he's Messiah. They believe that he is who he says he is. And, and he looks at them and says, if you will continue in my word. That word continues the same word in, in John 15 we'll look at later as abide. If you dwell, if you abide, if you stay, if you live, if you stay at home in my word. 
This word here is, the, is that Greek word logos or logos, however you want to say it. In the John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word or the logos. Uh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's been a lot of efforts to, to describe or define that word from, used in the Bible, which is the Greek word logos. And it is the idea, how, how can I put it together? It is really something, it, it is more than just a word, but it's that which involves an entire concept, an entire message. So when Christ talks about His Word, He's not just talking about a commandment. He's not talking about just one aspect of His ministry. He's talking about the sum total of all of His message, the sum total of His kingdom, the sum total of His purpose, the sum total of His principles that are, are, are brought unto us. So He's not just saying if you continue in an aspect of what I am or, or what I teach, but basically if you continue in my concept of life, if you continue in my perspective, in my message, he said, then you're my disciples indeed. In other words, you're not going to be a disciple unless you stick with me. That's right. If you give up, you're not going to be my disciple. If you quit, you're not going to be my disciple. If you just want part of my message, you're not going to be my disciple. But if you'll take everything that I've got to give you and you will receive that, then you'll be my disciple. Hey, this is an all or nothing proposition. It is take it all or take nothing at all. That's the way Christianity is. It's not piecemeal. It's not partiality. Uh, You've got to take it all or nothing. And he says, something will happen. If you will continue my word, you'll be my disciple, and you're going to know truth. Truth is going to come to you, and that truth is going to liberate you. It's going to make you free. Now, we're going to talk about that when we get to it here in a moment, some more of the details of that. But, but let me state this principle again. So that the process, or in the second aspect of being a disciple, first of all, we said that this being a disciple is that Christ is going to transform you and make you like Him. He's perfecting you. You need to be conscious of that in your life. Amen. You need to be conscious of all the processes, trials, problems, challenges, messages that are being preached to you, circumstances that surround you, things that you are facing. Christ is working in all that on you. So many times we're conscious of what he's doing in others, but we need to be conscious that he's working on us. In every situation, the person you live with, the children that you have, the difficulties you are facing, Christ is through all of that working on you to make you like him. Now, and then now in this one, the life of being a disciple is that of abiding in his doctrine, abiding in his uh, concept, in his message, in, in his philosophy of life, abiding in that. And it is this idea of knowing and living and learning the truth. Yeah. Knowing and living and learning the truth. That's the idea. If you abide in my word, if you are abiding in my philosophy, the result of that is you will have truth. Yeah, that's right. I'm not here espousing a lie. I'm not here giving you something that's just some kind of uh, uh, new, new concept on the block or some new philosophy to entertain people or to say something new. I've come to bring truth to you. So being a disciple of Jesus Christ is abiding in truth, applying that truth to our life, and allowing that truth to bring liberty to us so that you and I live and walk in the truth and liberty of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to take this because there's so much in this passage, and I want to give you the concepts of what is happening here and try to put some of these things together. We are at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, I believe it is. And when you go back to John chapter 8, you remember that great statement that Jesus makes, or chapter 7 rather, on the last day of the feast when he said, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And out of his belly shall flow rivers of living waters. And Jesus said, um, he said, or John will comment on that, and said that Christ spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. Now remember, this story is actually a continuation of an event that has happened back in John chapter 5. Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath day, and the Pharisees are upset about it. They're trying to kill him. Yep. They're trying to kill him. 
They're trying to find some way to accuse him. They're trying to execute him and find some way to do that. And at the beginning of chapter 7, his brothers say, hey, why don't you go up to the feast? You know, if you're the Messiah, why don't you just go announce yourself? Go to Jerusalem, make a big announcement about yourself. He said, it's not time for me to do that. There'll come a day he'll come into Jerusalem riding on the donkey. <laughs> he'll come in and they'll cry him, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God. And, and they, will, they will praise him. But that time is not, not, not yet. But he does go up and on that last day he makes that great statement. And again, they're arguing with him. Now, in this process, they have sent officers to take him. In John chapter 7, they have sent men to go. They're upset, they're angry, they're fuming. They're furious at Jesus Christ. And so they send officers, go get him and take him. And, uh, well, when they get there, they get to hearing Jesus teach. And they're so mesmerized and captivated by the teaching of Jesus Christ uh, that they're, they're just kind of hogtied, if you will, uh, and tongue-tied and everything else. And they, they just come back to the Pharisees empty-handed. And they, where's he at? We ain't never heard anybody, I'm going to put it in our kind of modern vernacular, we've never heard anybody talk like him. We have never heard any man speak like that man speaks. And so there is this, uh, again, this anger and, and, and this venom that comes from them. And they said, are you deceived too? And uh, have, they said, look at us. Have any of us rulers believed on him, any Pharisees? And one of them speaks up, it was Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He says, fellas... And he tries to reason with this crowd. He says, does our law judge somebody before it hears him? And uh, basically, in their mind, Christ is condemned before he ever gets started. They never took the time to evaluate his teaching. Because to do so would mean they would have to humble themselves and change things in their life. And they're not interested in change. So when someone's not interested in change, they're not interested in the truth being applied to their life then they are going to just defend themselves and they're going to reach out to kill that which uh, comes to them. So Nicodemus, they tell Nicodemus and say, why don't you go search? Have you, look, has any prophet ever come out of Galilee? Look, out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And that's not actually true because Jonah came from Galilee. And uh, every man, the Bible says at the end of chapter 7, every man went to his own house. Do you see that? Challenge chapter 7, verse 53. Pick it up there. And, and take out the chapter 8, all right? The, the letter, the word chapter and 8. I just want you to read continuously because that's how it was written when this was written down as a gospel. There were no verse numbers and no chapter numbers. It was just one continuous uh, a message that was being uh, written by the apostle John. And we notice every man went to his own house. Jesus went under the Mount of Olives. So at the end of this day, at the last day of the feast, all these men have houses. Christ, he's camping out. He didn't have a house to go to. They go to their house, and Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives where he's staying at nighttime. He does this frequently. He will do this in the, and when he comes to Jerusalem and there's times for feast times, there's there for a week or two, whatever, he will camp out on the Mount of Olives, and then in the daytime he goes in to the city. Now, early in the morning, he gets up and he comes down into, uh, into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and begins to teach. And as he does so, uh, those fellows have been scheming all night long. Now they haven't been able to get him. They sent officers to take him and it didn't work. So they're trying to get Jesus and he comes and they, so they, somewhere during the night, early in the morning, they've schemed this. They have no doubt known this woman. And they know what she does. They know what her habit is. They know she's a cheater. And they go get a hold of her and say, this is what we're going to try. So they go get a hold of this woman. They don't, they don't even fool with the man. And, uh, and they get this woman. And you can just see him. Now, Jesus is sitting down and teaching the people in, in the courtyard. I think it's the court of the women. But he's in there. It's in the treasury. And he's teaching. They've got all these big uh, chests like silver trumpets that are around and where they put their money and their offerings in. And, and so he's sitting down and the crowd is gathered teaching and they come muscling their way in there and they kind of shove this woman into his midst. Rude. How rude to interrupt the master when he's teaching. Now, they could care less about this teaching. They're just trying to trap him up. And so they set her in the midst. Now, you got to put yourself for a moment. Now, this woman is sinned. All right? let's, let's, not, let's not take up for her in, in one side. And she's done something wrong. Right. She's committed a crime. Yes. She's committed a capital crime. She's committed adultery. Yes. 
And there's no doubt about that, and Christ is never excusing that. So, a sin is a sin. But how that sin is dealt with matters too. You can deal with it in a just manner. You can deal with it in an unjust manner. So Christ is not just concerned about correcting the wrong. He's concerned about how the wrong is corrected and how the wrong is, how the the situation is judged. So these men are going to put this woman in the midst um, and you can just see her for a moment. Now there's probably a a fairly good sized crowd that's gathered there and, and if you can just see her, she is all of a sudden the center of attention. Now, she feels pretty rotten because no doubt what she's done, I'm sure. She's committed adultery. But now she's being made a spectacle. She's being used. She's just being used. And I, I don't know. I was reading this today, and I just got to think about that woman just for a moment. How it must feel. How many pairs of eyes are watching her. And her sin has all of a sudden just been exposed to the whole neighborhood. Everybody now knows And just think about it. When she leaves there that day and they see her on the street, if they didn't know it, they know it now. If they didn't know what her past was, they know it now. Her sin has just been put on public display. Now, that doesn't excuse her sin. But I don't know that that's exactly how this, I don't think that's how it was. she was meant to be judged. But they said she was taken in adultery, the very act. So this has happened this night before. And they, you know, they said in verse 5, um, in John 8 and 5, Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him. So we find their motive. That they might have to accuse him, but Jesus stooped down And with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Now remember, he was already sitting. I do not know if he rose up when they brought the woman in, but back in verse 2, it tells us he sat down and he was teaching the people. So if he was sitting uh, on something, I don't know what he may have been sitting on, but it may have just been that he, he leaned over, stooped down like this, and began to write in the ground. Now, folks get a lot up. Well, what was he writing in the ground? Well, can I tell you this? If it had been important enough, they would have told us. Good point. All right? Good point. I don't know what he wrote in the ground. The Bible doesn't say what he wrote in the ground, and you can have one theory is maybe as good as the next theory, but, but quite frankly, the writer of the gospel didn't feel it either. He didn't pay attention to it himself. He just know Christ is writing on the ground. And we're going to notice that it, it is unnerving to them. It, he, it is now, look at verse 6. And they said, tempting him, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now the phrase, as though he heard him not, is not in the original. That's in italics, and that was added by the translators. So that's, it's, that's something they added, as though he heard him not. But it doesn't say that. It just said he wrote on the ground, so he's just silent. He says nothing. He doesn't respond to them. That's a good tactic to learn. Silence can unnerve people. I watch a Pentecostal service and we have two minutes of silence and folks go nuts. We get a little bit of quiet. We're like, somebody's got to do something. Somebody's got to say something. Somebody's got to shout here. Somebody's got to do a hallelujah or something. And we're just unnerved by that. Sometimes just being silent will set the tone. First of all, notice what's happened. Christ is so wise. The whole crowd's gone on an uproar because this woman's been shoved in there. The teaching's been disrupted. And these guys are full of anger and venom, and they're coming in, and this woman is shoved in the midst. I mean, it's chaos for a moment. And Christ's silence is just going to let some things simmer and settle down a little bit. And so when, he continued, when they continued asking him, so you can see them now kind of taunting him, He lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now, he knows that these men have not done this right. He knows that. Everybody knows that. You're the accusers. That's what the law says. The law says accusers. He did not deny the law. Notice something. Jesus never, ever denied the penalty of the law because the penalty for adultery in the law was stoning. And Jesus never said, I came to do away with that. He said, 
Go ahead. You brought her. You found her. You're the judges of the situation. Uh, and, and if you are right in your judgment and you've been fair and you've been just, uh, it takes two to commit adultery. We've only got one here. Uh, I'll just throw that in there. And, and so go ahead. Cast the stone. Well, they know that they have not been just. They know they've not treated this woman right because they've singled her out and haven't got the man. And if she was caught in the act, there had to be somebody there. So they're prejudiced. It's obvious they're prejudiced. And I think that's the sin that Christ is referring to. In other words, if you are judging this woman without prejudice and you're judging for the sake of the law and because you're concerned about righteousness, then go ahead and cast the first stone. He's not saying to these men that, well, if you have a life that's free from every sin. Uh, He's not saying that. Uh, We put men on the judgment seat, sinner men that sit on judgment seats all the time, and we expect them to render a judgment according to the law. Because men, when they look at the law objectively, have the ability to judge it. It's an amazing thing about us. We're only prejudiced when it deals with our own sins. We can judge the wrongs of others. Mm -hmm. We struggle judging ourselves. Amen. Now, watch what happens. And I want you to notice something this first time now sin is mentioned. Because this is going to set the stage for everything that's going to take place. And this issue of sin is going to come up throughout this passage several times. So he says that and he just stoops down and writes on the ground again. Again, what did he write? I have no idea. And they which heard it. Now notice, they're not moved by what he wrote on the ground. Maybe he's doing something. But what they're moved by is the statement he makes. He that's without sin, let him cast the first stone. And their conscience. Now the amazing thing about these fellows is they haven't seared their consciences. They're still working a little bit. And uh, that gives them a little bit of hope. Amen. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one beginning at the eldest even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So apparently they become front and center. The crowd is gathered around and now it's just Jesus and the woman, and they've got this probably an empty circle here, and, and these guys have got this woman, and now Jesus says, and those guys go out. They go off to the side, they move out of the circle, and it's just Jesus left with the woman. And now, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now Jesus, again, if some people think, Well, then Christ has changed the penalty for adultery. Christ has shortchanged this business of adultery. And he's just going to wipe it off. No. First of all, he told her to go and sin no more. That indicated he didn't approve of what she did. Exactly. And he says, Go and sin no more. That indicates, Hey, you need to stop what you're doing. That's wrong. Your adultery is wrong. Now again, He doesn't condemn her. We're going to see this verified. I've said this numerous times in a little while because it's just Jesus. Although he could condemn her, he's not come for that purpose. He's not come to be a civil judge. He'll do that when he returns at the end of the tribulation. He will come as civil judge. He will come as king of the earth and he will judge. He will destroy the armies of the Antichrist. He will bring set a judgment seat. He will separate sheep nations from goat nations and he's going to judge. But he didn't come this first time to judge and condemn men. He came to save men. And so, but he looks at her. He knows she's been handled wrongly. He knows her case has not been handled accurately. And so he just tells her to go and sin no more. But he can't now as a man and by the law condemn her because the law requires two witnesses and he's only one. And he does not, as a man, he did not see her adultery and catch her. So therefore he couldn't be a witness to the fact anyway as a man, as God, he can judge her. As a man, in this case, he knows she is wrong, and he can tell that, but he tells her to go and sin no more. Now, notice again, this whole scenario this day has been set by a situation where a woman has been caught in sin, in an act of adultery, and I would venture to say this is not the first time it's happened. They found her. They knew her, and apparently this is a lifestyle And he is looking at her, you need to get out of your lifestyle of sin. You need to get out of your lifestyle of adultery. Go and sin no more. So he is concerned. He is concerned in his ministry about 
getting men out of sin. Freeing and liberating men from sin. So you'll see that as it unfolds. Verse 12. And then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now this is the first of three great statements that Christ is going to make. And I, I read the one that uh, about if you continue my word, you're my disciples, you'll know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And this is the, but the first one he makes in this passage, and they're all connected, is he says that he, he says to those folks that are standing around, imagine now it's quiet. The woman has faded into the, into the crowd. The Pharisees are quiet. Everything's kind of been brought back now. And you can see people maybe among themselves, wow, did you, man, what wisdom. What, look at this guy. Did you, they're just, I mean, they're, they're amazed. I could see the amazement and the, and the thoughts are rolling in their mind. And, and Jesus just, all of a sudden, he, he breaks out and he says, I'm the light of the world. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. What a statement. They are sitting there and they're looking at Jesus Christ and he says, I'm the light of the world. What a statement for somebody to make. And he says, whoever will follow me, that's what a disciple does, whoever will follow me, he shall have the light of life. Wow. Let me put that in another phrase. Jesus says, I am here, look at my life, And I have come to reveal to you how men should live their life. And if you will follow me, become my disciple, then you will know what life is all about. Look, folks, he's pretty much penniless. He has nothing but the clothes on his back. All right. He has just offended the religious elite of the day. He is a carpenter's son. He grew up in a carpenter shop. He is poor as dirt. And the man who is poor as dirt, he's a peasant. And he declares to the world, I'm the light of life. (laughs) And if you'll follow me, you'll have the life, the light of life. Wow. And you think, you know, you'd think it'd be someone with great robes and a palace and, and, and riches and wealth. In other words, look, I can show you how to live. And he is a peasant who is penniless and he hasn't even had the house. He's camping out on the Mount of Olives. And he says, come on and live your life with me and I'll show you how to live life. I'm going to tell you right now, if that had been just a common peasant, he would have been laughed at. But he didn't get laughed at because there's something about him that is magnetic. It's powerful. It's powerful. Now watch what happens. Watch what happens. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. What do you mean by that? Notice what Jesus has said. He has made a self-declaratory statement. He has made a declaration of self without anything to back it up. No one to confirm him. He has simply stood out without anybody attesting to it, anybody confirming him, anybody recommending him and says, I'm the light of life. And the Pharisees say, whoa, you can't do that. You can't make that kind of statement. You're bearing witness of yourself. You're just saying that you're it. You've got nothing to confirm that. You've got nothing to prove that. Who are you to make that kind of statement? You've got no evidence for that whatsoever. You cannot be true because you are just bearing witness to yourself. Now, interesting is they know the law because remember, this is all in this context of Jesus not condemning the woman because the law requires how many witnesses? Jesus is going to tell us. Notice. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go, but you cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. Now that's something he's been talking about even back in chapter 7. Maybe look at it a little bit later. But again, he's talking about, I'm on a mission. I'm going somewhere. I've come from somewhere and I'm going somewhere. Now Jesus is saying, you're right. I did bear record of myself. I made a statement about myself with nothing to back it up. Just made a statement. I'm the light of the world. I, I, made it, I did that. But th- just because I bore record of myself doesn't make it untrue. He said it's true because I know where I've come from and I know where I'm going. 
He came from heaven and he's going back to heaven. <laughs> he came from the Father and he's going back to the Father. He knows his mission. Jesus Christ has a divine consciousness in him. Right at this point, being fully man, standing in front of him, he's fully man, and yet he's fully God. And he is conscious of that. There is in him a consciousness of his manhood and a consciousness of his divinity. And he says, I know where I come from. Woo, glory to God. I'm going to tell you, for me, folks, I'm conscious of one thing, in that I was born, and before that I didn't exist, and I'm not conscious of coming from anywhere except from my mother's womb. And Jesus wasn't talking about coming from the womb of Mary. I know where I have come from. I have come from glory. I have come from the Father. I have been sent yes, by the sir. Father, and I am going back to the Father. Yes, sir. Now notice. Notice what he says. And he tells them, he said, basically, you can't even tell where I come from and where I'm going. Verse 15, you judge after the flesh, I judge no man. You judge after the flesh, I judge no man. Now that's in this context of this woman being judged. Let's also look back at a verse that goes with this, back to chapter 7. Because these were things that were happening in the, in the last few days. They have judged Christ and, uh, and they've not been judging him rightly. Chapter 7 and verse 24, he has told them. And remember, remember something. Here was the thing he talked about. Why are you trying to kill me? What have I done? We're not trying to kill you. Big fat liar. Yeah, it's exactly they're trying to kill him. Jesus said in John 7 and 21, I've done one work and you marvel. Then he talks about circumcision in verse 22 and 23. Verse 23, if a man on the Sabbath they receive circumcision that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Remember, that's back to chapter 5. He has healed this man on the Sabbath. And he said, are you angry with me because I made a man whole on the Sabbath? You circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if you circumcise him, you cut him. You hurt him. That's painful. He said, I alleviated a man's pain. I healed him. You hurt a man on the Sabbath. I heal a man on the Sabbath. And you're going to tell me I'm wrong? He says, judge not according to the appearance. Judge righteous judgment. You're looking at something on the surface. You're just judging something on the appearance of things. You are not judging righteously. Now we're back to John chapter 8. And Jesus says, you judge after the flesh. What is it to judge after the flesh? To judge after the flesh is to judge after your own sight and your own intuition. It's not to judge biblically. It's not judging righteously. It's judging by your own feelings. It's judging by your own prejudices. It's judging by your own human intuition. That's the flesh. It's just human judgment. Now Jesus said, I judge no man. Now in this context, he is not talking about the fact that he's not, or talking about that he's not a judge. He is, he is a judge. And yet, because in verse 16 he said, and yet if I judge, my judgment is true. But I judge no man. That's the sense in which it's here. That's what he didn't do to that woman. He didn't judge her. Now one day he will judge her. She didn't get it right. She'll see him. She'll see him again in glory. She'll see him at the white throne judgment or maybe before. If she got saved and she, she took uh, his word and became his disciple, then her sins are gone. It's under the blood of Jesus Christ. And she'll still be judged for her works and everything. But we are all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So he's going to judge. But he didn't come this first time to sit in the judgment seat. He come to die on the cross. He didn't come to be a judge of men. Remember another situation where he had, had two brothers that were there. And one of them said, Lord, make my brother divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said, who made me a judge over you? He said, beware covetousness. A man's life consists not of the things in which he possesses. Quit being so greedy and quit worrying about it. It's all going to burn anyway. So the Jesus Christ, he didn't judge that woman because that's not what he came to do. He didn't come the first time to be a civil judge. All right. Now watch it. Where we're going here. 
Watch what he goes. And he said, verse 16, And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. I like that. I like that. Here comes that witness. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. So Jesus is saying that, oh, yes, it is true. I, I bore witness of myself. That's how you judge it because that's how your flesh perceives it. You perceive it as just I'm making this statement about myself. But he will go on and tell us, I want to speak in what the Father tells me to speak. <laughs> And so the father is witnessing. The father is telling him what to say. And he says it and he declares it about himself. I'm a witness of myself and the father is a witness about me. That makes two. That makes it true. And that honors the law that God gave. Hey, this is one of the reasons I believe in the Trinity. When God gave two or three witnesses, I'm going to tell you something right now, even though he knows everything. God gave a law that reflected the divine Godhead and God is only one person then he violates his own law when he judges you and I Amen. because there's only one but our God exists in three persons right. Father, right. Son and right. Holy Ghost right. and there are three that bear witness in heaven hallelujah and there are three yes, that sir. witness against us when we sin or whether we do right and the law is a reflection of that let it be in the mouth every word is established in the mouth of two or three witnesses and that is based upon the plurality and is found in the Godhead that is why I'm not a Unitarian at least one reason and I believe in the Trinity and this very statement bears witness to that, it would make no sense if Jesus and the Father are not two distinct persons. If they are not distinct persons, this statement he just made is ludicrous. Are you with me? Say amen. 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 Alright, verse 19. Let's, let's keep going. Then said they unto him, Where is thy Father? Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my Father. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. Now these words Jesus spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. Remember that? They've been trying to do that back in chapter 7. And those guys tried to go and get him and they didn't get him. And now they want to get him again and they can't get him. Because yeah. his time has not yet come. Ah, oh, I like that. Glory to God. Don't worry about your enemy because he cannot do anything until God says the time has come. Right. And when high <laughs> glory. And so Jesus says here, it's, this, this sounds a little bit like it's, it's kind of running around in circles, but it's really not because Jesus just said, the Father's bearing witness of me. The Father bears witness of who I am. Where's your Father? Now, Jesus wasn't talking about an earthly father. But he says, you don't know me, you don't know my father. If you'd known the father, you'd know me. Right. In other words, if you fellas really knew God, he basically just at this point calls them a bunch of sinners and hypocrites that don't know God. Because if you knew God, you'd know me. Right. But you know what? You don't know me because you don't know God. Exactly. So it'd be no good for me. In other words, you would know that God has witnessed to what I am doing. You would know the words I speak are the words of God. Now how do I know that? Because he mentions it. Go back to chapter 7 for a moment. Check to chapter 7. Now you have to see, I'm, I'm kind of just bringing out chapter 8, but all of this has been fresh in their mind. These are things he said over the last day or so. In John chapter 7, uh, Jesus taught in verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. And he said, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. That's been the question. They said, you bore witness to yourself, your witness is not true. And Jesus said, my witness is true because I know where I've come from and I know where I'm going. And besides, I have another witness, it's the Father. And he said, there are witnesses. My father and I are two witnesses, and that makes it true. But he says back in chapter 7, in verse 16 through 18, he says, if any man will do his will. In other words, if any man chooses to do God's will, and that is his desire, is to do the will of God, he will know if the doctrine I preach is right or not. Let me say it another way. Jesus says, if you have a heart to know God, then you're going to know that I'm from God. Yes. Amen. Yes. 
Oh, glory to God. If you've got a heart from truth, you'll know it when you see it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. If you have a heart for truth and you have a heart to do what's right, you don't have to worry about being deceived. You will not be deceived if you have a heart for truth because a heart for truth will recognize the truth when it sees it. We are deceived when we have no heart for truth and our own blindness and our own prejudices deceives us because our hearts are wicked and don't want to bow to the truth. And Jesus is telling here, you're going to know whether I speak of God or not. So he's already talked about the Father testifying to him. And now, on further, verse 21, back to John chapter 8 now, verse 21. I hope it's not overwhelming you. Just hang with it. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way and you shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot come. Now he's also been talking about that back in chapter 7. I'm going to go my way, he said. I like that. They're trying to lay hands on him and destroy him. And he says, I'm going to go do what I've been called to do. <laughs> you you going to stop me. I'm going to go my way. <laughs> and uh, he says, and, and when I do, he said, you're going to seek me, but you're going to die in my, your sins. They were going to seek him. They were going to seek for Messiah. They're going to seek for God. But the problem is, is they don't know God and they don't have a heart for truth. These are men that talk about God. There's a lot of people out there seeking God, but not out of a heart for truth. They're looking for God. They call to a higher power. They pray to a higher power. There's sinner folks out there that pray. There's some of them reading their Bible all the time. And they pray. But they're as lost as can be. Because they have no heart for truth. They have no heart. They don't want to live a life of unselfishness. They don't want to turn from their selfish ways. They just want God. They just want to have God in their life. They want His blessing. They want what God can give them. And that's the same thing Jesus is saying here. You're going to seek for me. You're going to seek for this I am. You're going to seek after God. You're going to seek after Messiah. That's who I am. But you're going to die in your sins. Now, he's going, to, he's going to make that statement again. Watch this. And he says, Whither I go, you cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he saith, Whither I go, you cannot come. Wow, they really think weird, don't they? But, and he said unto them, You are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am. The word he is in italics. Don't read that with it. If ye believe not that I am, you shall die in your sins. Now is going to come this statement. He's going to begin to develop this. And it's going to come out even richer in this passage. Because he said, I'm going where you don't know where I'm going. You don't know where I've come from and you don't know where I'm going and you can't go where I'm going. Why? Because you don't want truth. You have no heart for truth and you don't know God. You're seeking for God, but you're going to die in your sins. And he says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I am is a title of deity. It is God's name. It is a name that is applied to God and only God can say that. It's all the way from the Old Testament when Moses said, who shall I say has sent me? Say that the I am that I am has sent thee. And Christ says that if you don't believe I'm God, if you don't believe I am I am, if you don't believe that I am divine, you will die in your sins. I'm telling you it is an absolute necessity unless you believe that Christ is God you can't get saved if you think he's only a man if you think he's just a teacher you can study his philosophy you can try to imitate his works you can admire him but you're going to hell you're going to die in your sins the only way that you can be saved is that you've got to believe that he is God you've got to believe he is that I am you've got to believe that he came from the father and he went back to the father glory to God you've got to believe he's eternal you've got to believe he was there in the beginning you've got to believe that he existed before he ever came to the womb of Mary that's the conflict here the conflict is not about him being a good teacher the conflict is not even so much about his teaching the conflict is about 
his person. That's the problem. There are a lot of folks that don't mind. The bulk of the teaching of Christ, they admire it. Thomas Jefferson thought he was a great moral teacher. A lot of others think he's a great moral teacher. That's not the problem. The problem is who is he? Because you know what? He's not just a moral teacher. He's God. And if you don't believe he's God, you can't be saved. I don't care how much of his teaching you try to imitate and how much you try to do. If you don't believe he's God, you're out. Now, we're going to tie this to discipleship. So just hang on. i got a few more moments. Be with us. Now we're to verse 25 of John 8. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? Now he just said, I am the I am. He said that you must believe that I am. Well, who are you? And Jesus said then, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. <laughs> In other words, I've already told you that. You didn't like it then. You didn't agree. You didn't believe it then. You ain't going to believe it now. Uh, I have many things to say and to judge of you. But he that sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. Think about this. Here is the submission of Christ and the communion and the dependency. And, and it's the beauty of his person. In one moment he declares I'm the I am. And you see his divinity. And in the next verse you see his humanity. And you see him just relying on the Father and saying what the Father says. But what I want you to see about that is this. It says something about Christ. He said, I got a lot of things I could say right now. You want to talk about a revelation of life? He could have put every one of those Pharisees on display like they put that woman. Remember, that's what's fresh. That's the event that's happened this morning, all right? Early in the morning, that's what's fresh in the mind of the people. And that woman was put on display for her sin. He could have made every one of those sins known. He could have made their sins known. They had sin because they went out guilty. Their conscience convicted them. Their conscience caused them to go out. They had all kinds of things. Their motives were wrong. Christ could have exposed them. I got a lot I could judge of you. I got a lot that I could say of you. But you know what? I'm going to go say what Father tells me to say. And right now, Father doesn't tell me to say that, so I'm not going to say it about you. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. And then said Jesus unto them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am. And I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Now, when he talks about lifted up the Son of Man, he's talking about his crucifixion. When the time comes that you lift me up on Calvary, when the time comes that you crucify me, then you are going to see that I am. Ooh, hallelujah. And you're going to see that the Father has sent me, or the things I speak, I speak what the Father has taught me, and I speak of these things. What were some of the things he was teaching? I'll tell you one of the things he taught. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Well, when they lifted it up, three days after they lifted him up, he is going to raise from the dead, folks. And when he raises from the dead, it disproves that everything Jesus said was right. When God raised him from the dead, it just gave a witness that everything in the life of Jesus Christ was right with the Father. And that he did say what the Father had said. He did give the words of his Father. You're going to know there's more to me than man. You're going to understand that I am the God-man. Oh, glory. When they lifted him up on Calvary, Calvary is going to give witness not merely to his humanity. As he dies, he must take on flesh and blood so he can shed that blood. In the divine being, he is spirit. But as man, he is flesh and blood and he can shed blood. Oh, but when he dies on Calvary, they're going to know this is not just a man. This is more than man. This is the Son of God. This is God Almighty who has come. And you're going to see it. The day is going to come. Now you don't see it, but the day is going to come, Jesus said. You're going to understand that I am the I am. And the cross is going to give witness to that when he comes and the events that have take place there. Verse 29, and he that sent me is with me. The Father had not let me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. What a statement. The Father has not left me alone. I do always those things that please him. Remember I told you, preached to you Sunday morning. Jesus Christ 
was not only testified to having a sinless life by others, he himself confessed he was sinless. How many of us in this room could ever make that statement? Can you make the statement, I always do the things that please God? No. I haven't always done the things that please God. Every one of us have at some point or another failed, and we have not always pleased God. But Jesus said, always, no exception. I always do. That is a declaration of his sinlessness. Again, it's one thing to tell a man you have no sin. It's another thing to make him believe it. We would never believe that about a human being, a mere human being. We would never believe that any man came to us and said, I always do the things that please God. <laughs> really? <laughs> Let me just live with you for a while. Get a little see what's going to happen here. I just I want to see a little bit of you. But Jesus said it. And what was the result? People believed him. That's what it said. As he spake these words, many believed on him. <laughs> That's what Paul said over in 1 Timothy. God was manifest in the flesh. And the Bible said he was believed on in the world. Whoo, glory. Hallelujah. I'm going to tell you, in, in some ways you might say, maybe you think because we're, we get the opportunity, we get all of this, we get to read it after the fact. We get to read the whole story. They're living it out as it happens. They don't have revelation. They don't have the epistles. They don't have any of the New Testament written, but they've got the living Lord in front of them. And they are now facing that living Lord. And, and, and you've got to admit it, folks, uh, that, it, that when they see him, he's a man. He's ordinary like everybody else. You cut him, he bleeds. He looks like everybody else. He's a carpenter. His hands are rough. He is, he is a man. And he just tells you he's without sin. He just tells you he's got a relation and the Father bears witness to him. He just tells you he's the I am. And when he does, people believe him. We have the advantage in some ways of reading the whole story, having the resurrection. They didn't have the resurrection yet. We have the resurrection and we have it all. We have more proofs that he is the I am than they had at that moment. But what I want you to understand is here's the conviction. How is it that they could believe him? Because there's a, 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 the spirit of Christ. There is his presence. Oh, glory to the Woo! Lamb of God. I'm telling you, I have been in places and I will tell you, I know when it's of God. I know when it's true. It bears witness. The Holy Spirit writes it. He brings it to our hearts. He lets us know that it's real and you and I are convicted I don't have to have the proofs I don't have to have 35 people tell me the very presence of God God knows how to convict God knows how to convince and he was able his very presence and the Holy Spirit with him and the Heavenly Father that was with him is able to convince and illuminate the minds of the people that when they had a heart for truth Jesus Christ they would be convinced of the reality of this person. It's not hard to believe if you're willing to accept right. truth. Amen. And if you want truth, yeah. it's not hard to believe. God will bring, give you all you need to believe. Wow, I'm out of time here today. Then Jesus said, Jesus, to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue, if you abide, if you stay, if you dwell in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, I'm going to pick it up there next time when we get to it, and I'm going to talk about this idea of truth making us free, and I'm going to talk about what kind of freedom is he talking about. Now, you, I want you to remember what I've said tonight. I want you to remember the scenario when we come in here in our next study, whenever that is, Sunday probably. But when, when we come in here Sunday, I want you to remember what's been happening. We got a woman who wasn't being handled truthfully. We got men who were, who were concerned only about an act of adultery in order to get Jesus Christ. They had no concern about truth. Again, because adultery takes two. And if you're going to be truthful and you caught her in the act, there should have been someone else there. All right. So here are folks that have no concern for truth. And, but there are some folks that in the midst of that that have believed on him. And he says, if you'll just keep on with me, if you'll stay with me, you're going to know more truth and more truth. And that truth is going to liberate you. 
Now that throws them into a tailspin. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking about? Free me. You don't see no shackles on my hands. You don't see shackles on my feet. I'm no somebody's slave. I got my own farm. I got my own house. I'm nobody's servant and slave. What are you talking about? Free me. And we're going to talk about the freedom that Jesus was talking about in this context. But you've got to remember all that's been leading up to this. And we're going to pull all of that together in, in, the, in the, the next study. By God's grace, pull all of that together and then put it together with 1 John chapter 3. So you can see the similarities in the passage. Can you say amen to God's word? Amen.